Marvellous. So if you have a Bible, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7, if not, it is up on the screen. Let me read. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Well, good evening. It's great to be here. My name is James. A particular welcome if you're watching online, uh, maybe for the first time. Uh, I'm also part of the ministry team here. particular welcome if you are in COVID lockdown. Uh, so many in our church family are affected by that, including Nigel and Nikki Fortescue. Nigel would normally be preaching tonight on a great church sings, but is unable to be here. So I'm going to go slightly sideways and talk about a great church praise. So, with that in mind, we're going to unpack what Josh just read for us. When you get your phone bill, whatever form it comes, it's quite natural to look first at the numbers, isn't it? The figures. How much is this going to cost me? But the second thing we look at is who we've called and for how long. What we don't get, unless uh, we're being, our phone's being tapped by the Federal Police or ASIO, is a transcript of what has been said to whom. Friends, if, I mean, that could be a mix of things. It could be mundane, it could be private, it could be totally ordinary or incredibly important. You think of all the things you might say in a phone. If someone placed before us a phone bill and transcript of our communication with God this week, how would it read? What would appear on the page? I suspect it would be a mix of uh, personal thanks, perhaps a fear, a burning question, a deep uncertainty. Uh, there might be some real anger at God. There might be an accusation. There might just be a sigh of relief. All of those things might follow on a, such a transcript. I would hope that somewhere in that week, our prayers bent beyond ourselves to include others. They might be members of the family. They might be broader members of the church or people we work with or study with. It might include the, this world. You might have gone global this week, gone large, holding before God a very messy but magnificent planet Earth. For some of us, that transcript might be empty. It might have been one of those weeks. And when I look back on my life and my walk with God, there were far too many weeks when it has been blank. I haven't had much or anything to say to God. Friends, one of the things we're going to discover tonight is whether your transcript of prayer is full or it's empty, that little figure in the box is always the same. It's always massive. The cost of prayer doesn't change. The question is, will we exercise, are we exercising that very costly gift? Individually, as a household, whatever your household might look like, and, and particularly as a church. 
Last week, as we opened this series, we looked at the fact that a great church gathers, gathers according to God's gospel. And 1 Timothy, the letter we've just dipped into tonight, has a lot to say to us as a household or a family of God. That's the language of 1 Timothy. A household that is to be prayerful. And tonight we find that a great church prays because we hold to the gospel that is stated so clearly in 1 Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Uh, There was a, a, a guy who came for the first time this morning. He was sitting just over there, just where Jacob is. And someone had got alongside him out there in the car park and was just managing to talk to him, was sitting with him. And when that verse went up, he just went. And I found out later on, this guy had arrived here saying, I want to know what Jesus is about. What's he doing? Why did he come? And so the guy said, that's why. Here at the start of chapter 2, in that same letter, Paul says to those who are saved... Those who know that Christ has come for them, and I trust that that's us tonight, want you to pray. So part one, pray. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made. Now, there are some subtle distinctions between those four terms. We're going to unpack at least some of them tonight. There's so much overlap between them. It's best to see this as the apostle's way of saying, listen, Speak to our Heavenly Father a lot. Make this a priority, a basic part of your life as a household. Those four different terms for prayer not only emphasise its breadth, but its seriousness, the seriousness of it as action. We must never, ever think of prayer as passive. So the, the church that I was at before this Uh, When I would sit of a morning to pray, I was visible to the street. Uh, The office in the home was right there at the front. And I often sometimes wondered as I sat there with my eyes closed, I wonder what just people passing by or my own parishioners think. Do they think James is just doing nothing? But I wasn't. I was wrestling deeply, sometimes for myself or my family, but more often than not for those under my care. It was some of the hardest and I think most important work I ever did there and it's a work that's ongoing here, not just from me but from all who are shepherding this particular flock. Prayer is never passive. Petition, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving must be made. That's the language here of making. Over a hundred years ago, P.T. Forsyth wrote, Prayer is not mere wishing. It is asking with a will. It's a decisive action. It's a deliberate exercise of our Christ-given freedom to go before God and to praise him, to thank him, to plead with him as the Lord of history, as the God who saves, who transforms and judges, and all of it in accord with his word. We don't go to a stranger. We go to one we know one who has spoken in an encyclopedic way. That's why Josh and Lisa are so excited as they step into full-time study, why I hope we're gripped as we open the word ourselves. We don't go to a stranger, we go to a God that we know, but we go not merely wishing, but asking with a will. 
As such, that asking can be done by the youngest and the oldest, can't it? And everyone in between. So those, many would know that we're about to, to reconfigure our entire morning services and create one morning service at 9.15 with all our families in it. Many here will be integral to that because you might be leading in one of the teams. One of the things I'm really looking forward to in a month's time or more is standing right here with someone about this high and that boy or girl will ask the boldest thing of all. Anyone who's been involved with kids, whether it be in youth or kids ministry or as a parent, will know that some of our boldest intercessors are the tiniest of people. They will barrel up to God and ask outrageous things. Outrageous to us, but not to them or to the Lord. Friends, we can pray. We must pray. We must pray. For whom? Part two, who should we pray for? I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone. If you're a visitor to this household tonight, whether you're in the building or you're watching online or at any time this year, we would hope that one of the things you notice is that we pray as much for those outside our family home as those within it. It's great, isn't it, the fact that we have in Christ a seat of honour beside Jesus and before God our Heavenly Father. That's brilliant. But that is not grounds for being insular or withdrawn from our society, our neighbourhood or our culture. Here we are being urged to be extroverted in our prayer, to be super generous in how we extend that gift to others. So be a church, a household, a person whose prayer life knows no boundaries. So to illustrate that, I want us to think about our prayer life like a farm. So here's an aerial shot of a farm. The, the farmhouse itself, the key buildings at the centre of it, might be what we pray for ourselves, what we ask for ourselves, either for forgiveness, in thanks, in pleading. And then the fields around that farmhouse might be those that we know, might be family or close friends, people in our growth group, people at church or at work. Um, th these are the working fields of our farm. But at some point, that we're going to get to the boundaries, aren't we? We're going to reach a fence line, a boundary line. And the same is in our prayer life, isn't it? Friends, who's on the other side of that prayer fence line for you or for me or for us as a church? What sort of people are off in the trees? Are there people that you deliberately don't pray for, you avoid it <laughs> for some reason? Or are they those who we just never think to pray for? I remember once, uh, many years ago in ministry, someone said, who's, who's praying for Paris Hilton? Uh, I don't know if people even know who Paris Hilton is these days. But it's a good question. Who's praying for this person who might be a celebrity, but somewhere in there is made in God's image? Who's out there? Who's in the trees? For many of the first century Christians, Paul, who wrote 1 Timothy, would once have been way beyond the fence line. They may not have even considered praying for him. 
He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor, a violent man. And yet here he is writing this letter to us and to them. Who are those people that we think are too far from Jesus? They're too opposed to what I hold dear. Perhaps they're too foreign. They're too powerful. They're too weak. They're too lost. They're too addicted. (laughs) Why would you pray for them? What's the point? This verse is saying, jump the fence. Jump the fence. Admit no boundaries to your prayer life as a church or as an individual. There are no boundaries for whom we can pray for. There is no one beyond prayer. The term here, intercession, I think is probably the most weighty and powerful of the terms that that Paul uses. It usually means to speak to someone powerful on another's behalf, to speak for them. And as mighty as that is to do for each other, it's all the more powerful when we're doing it for those who cannot, who will not pray, because they simply don't know God yet. That's powerful intercession, isn't it? And to that end, Paul focuses here on particularly on those who too easily live on the other side of that fence in every generation of the church, those who are beyond our prayer focus. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority. So how challenging is that? When such figures are so often opposed or at least unsympathetic or utterly indifferent to the church and sometimes directly behind persecution. You've got to remember that when this letter was written, there was not a single Christian leader figure, political figure in the ancient world. We know from Paul's letter to Philippians that the gospel was going to start moving inside the administration of Rome, but there was not a single significant political figure who identified as a Christian. Even if a ruler or government's not openly opposed to the Christian faith, it's very tempting, isn't it, just to think of these figures, they're just too far out of reach, they're too powerful, they're too caught in the machinery of state. And just be resigned, just be cynical about change ever occurring. And I've got to admit that I sometimes sit here on Sunday night and we are, I think this is a group that, that prays very boldly. I love this group, this congregation. It is marked by very bold public prayer. And yet there are times when I'm sitting where you are, perhaps watching online, and we're polled before God the Middle East. Or might be something related to COVID. It might be North Korea. Some long-term mess, and I struggle to say amen with any degree of faith because I can't see how that will change. It's too big. That that mess is too old. It's too complicated. It's been going on forever. Are you the same? Because at that moment, I am caught suffering from a small God syndrome. My God has shrunk at that particular moment. And the best antidote for that I can think of is in the Old Testament, 
The prophet is Isaiah and it's chapter 40. I'm just going to give you two small parts of a much larger, brilliant chapter. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. How great is our God. Deliberate, regular prayer for kings, prime ministers, premiers, you know, principals of schools, whoever reveals that we know one great. It cuts deliberately against any small God syndrome. It shows that we know one greater than our government, one mightier than COVID, the Middle East or the Roman Empire, whatever age, whatever era we are living in. We know the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. That's the language of 1 Timothy. And unlike our cynical culture, that too often just merely critiques leaders, sometimes praises them and then withdraws that fast, but generally just stands well away from leadership like that. We are to be different. We are to step close in prayer and in any other means by which God has called us to serve our time and place. We don't stand off in mere critique. We step in in prayer. And that prayer reveals that we get that leadership is complex. We may not always agree with it, but we know that those leaders need help. They are men and women just like us. Serious intercession for leadership, recognises complexity, wants to help and does so because we want to be good citizens, not just of our heavenly kingdom, but of this time, this place, this country. And whatever frustrations we might have with our state or federal government at any one time, we live in a good land, don't we? We are the envy of the world by and large. That prayer shows that we actually believe in our bones. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. There is no leader, be he or she, corrupt, crazy, brilliant, beneficial, who is outside of the Lord's hand and not a worthy object of our prayers. Will we be obedient to this verse? When we believe this, a great church prays for these things and prays for particular things, which brings us to the third section. What do we pray for? I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. The primary drive of this intercession is that those with authority will work to create a society that is orderly and a context in which we can live without violence and upheaval. 
Now, it is tempting, isn't it, to think that peaceful and quiet lives means a situation where we as Christians can simply disappear into our suburb. We can live lives that are no different from our neighbours and therefore slowly fall spiritually asleep in a worldly, materialist stupor. More and more, as your minister, as part of the team that shepherds here, I think our role, in fact all leaders' roles here, is to keep each other spiritually awake. We live in an incredibly beautiful city and a beautiful part of a beautiful city. And yet that beauty can be beguiling, can't it? You can quietly say, I've arrived in heaven, but we have not. And a key part of leadership within the kingdom is to stay awake and keep others awake with us, to stay alert. And a prayerful church is an alert church. When we pray this prayer, it does not read, live peaceful and quiet lives in all worldliness and conformity, but rather we pray for those in authority that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Literally, dignity. Beautiful word. We want a society where we can be openly Christian and clearly different in our culture. Holy, set apart in the way that we relate, we make decisions with our time, our money, the gifts and strengths that God's given us. We pray for order so that we can be overtly Christ-like over a long period of relationship with our neighbours, with fellow students, with those we work with. We ask for civil peace so we can be counter-cultural. Loving the enemy, being sacrificial in the way we spend our money, being hospitable with our homes, our doors are open. Friends, we pray for a settled, settled place to live so that we can be clearly salt and light in our street. Godliness, holiness that stands out. Now there's no question, it's something of Christian history and the history of the church, that the Christian faith is a very powerful witness in extremes during great upheaval and war. My old bishop, uh, Rob Forsyth, used to say, I think we're actually at our best when we're broke and we're getting beaten up. And that's probably true. The Christian witness in the persecuted world is very, very powerful. But we don't actually pray for those things to happen to us. We pray for the strength to respond if they do. I remember opening and preaching on this passage in 2017. And at that time, St George's Cathedral in Baghdad in Iraq, uh, it was just a beacon for the gospel. And yet, by the time that I had preached that, all of its youth leaders were dead, either in the conflict that was just swallowing the nation or by direct persecution. All their youth leaders, gone. They were martyrs for Christ. Praise God. Our youth leaders are alive, very much so and are being equipped by God and through this, this church to lead the camp that's coming up in a week's time and to disciple our kids in the long year ahead. Friends, which is a better situation? One certainly more dramatic, 
But surely this is better. Praise God for what he has given to us. As one writer put it, a quiet life does not mean a sheltered life, but rather freedom from the turmoil that gets in the way of gospel ministry, long-term gospel ministry. Many times Paul's work was just cut short by rioting imprisonment, wasn't it? Including in Ephesus where this letter first landed. Many times God worked through the Roman authorities to control the crowd and protect Paul. And the fact is the gospel went out so fast in that early century because of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The Romans built roads that took the gospel out to the very extremes of the empire. The Romans held a tight rein on the cities they controlled and within that order, the gospel moved. Yes, sometimes the Romans were behind the persecution in terrible ways, but the Pax Romana provided a context for the gospel to move in an orderly way. It's right to pray for persecuted Christians and we should do it more. But I know that those brothers and sisters they long to know a city in a suburb like this where they don't have to bury their children, go finding youth leaders who may or may not be alive and worship in secret. What we know is the answer to prayers of the saints in previous generations. We have the order so that we can live godly and holy lives. Are we doing that? Do we continue to pray for that? Our culture is shifting fast and the social cost of belonging to Jesus is rising, isn't it? The persecution is there and it's coming. But we must not take for granted the freedoms that we have. It's not a reason to sit back on our back foot, to be lazy in our wealth or hide from the world. We are free in Christ to be outward looking in our witness and in the way that we pray, salt and light. And God, through his apostle, is urging us to lift our eyes, look at the fence and jump it. Pray for everyone. Why? So last part tonight, the why. This is good, and it pleases God our Saviour. That should be reason enough, shouldn't it? If something's good and it pleases God... I want to do it. We as his church, his household, should want to do it most. But he pushes further. This is good, it pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, the testimony given in its proper time. Our God loves extroverted prayer that willingness to use whatever we have for the good of others, especially those outside of God's home, because it shows that we get his salvation plan. Generous intercession for those who can't speak for themselves, it shows, doesn't it? I actually understand who I was and who I now am. When we pray like that, it shows that we understand our own salvation story. You see... When Jesus came, he jumped the fence. He went from glory and holiness to a world riddled with sin. He has jumped the fence 
into our life, into our world. He has walked into enemy territory in order to save us and bring us home. We were once outside, we were in the trees, so to speak. But now we're inside. Not just in those working fields, we're seated at a table in the house. That's what we are. We are family. We are household in the language of 1 Timothy. So when it says that God wants all men to be saved, we do need to recognise that he, he is talking about all types of people and that literally not everyone will be saved. That's one of the hard truths of the gospel. We know from Ezekiel 18 in the Old Testament, God takes no delight in condemnation, but he is a holy God and he will judge. The next chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul warns those who fall under the same judgment as the devil. Judgment is real. Revelation 20, we're told that final separation of the elect from those under judgment. What we have here in 1 Timothy 2 is a reminder that God's great saving work through Jesus is one that will cross every man-made boundary, all people, whether that be matters of class or race or gender or geography, which is precisely what we saw last week. A great church, a true church, gathers according to the gospel. The church that understands God's plan will pray without boundaries will look for opportunities to share the truth, that truth that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now, we live in a world, don't we? We know it. Same as Timothy. A world with all sorts of gods and a generally pluralist, pluralist mindset that just says, well, most beliefs are, are valid my belief, your belief, whatever. To that, we say a humble, polite, no. No. There is one God and there's only one person who gets us to that God, who makes us right with that God, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. One God. The mediator is someone who brings two parties together, I almost said two warring parties. God's not at war with us. We're at war with him. And his son has come to make a forceful peace, to bring us to the Father. Jesus the man has done this for us and all whom God intends to save by bearing our sins in his flesh as he represents our sinful humanity before God. It's a phenomenal act of love. He alone can do that because he's the perfect son of God. And that's why a great church prays in his name. He alone gets that honour. His name alone opens the door that otherwise would be utterly locked. I began by talking about the divine phone bill, an account of our communication with God. And I said, even if that page is blank or it's full, the cost is the same. The bill is always huge. When we look at that account and we go to that little box that shows the cost, it always, always has this in it. 
the death of Jesus, the blood of our Lord and Saviour. That's what it costs to go to God as an adopted son, as a member of his family, with the freedom and confidence spoken of in Ephesians 3. The blood of Jesus. That's what it costs. Well, friends, in conclusion, I do worry that we as a church are not prayerful enough at times. I worry that our together in prayer nights are often seen as a night off rather than a night on. I worry that as we grow, we will be fooled into thinking that mere momentum equals maturity in Christ, or that size equals strength. And that is simply not true. Christ has and always will be our only salvation, our only strength. That's why Paul gives such prominence here to corporate, together, intercession. A truly great church is deepening in its dependence on him as we move faster, as we grow larger. So too do our prayers deepen and move such a church prays, knowing that prayer is a serious, blessed business, isn't it? It's not mere wishing, it is asking with a will. Asking one who sits alive and sovereign over the circle of the earth and a step from that circle into this earth, jump the fence and come to us. A Lord who mediates between us and his Father even now. You know that's happening even as I preach? There are prayers in the heavenly realms for what's going on here. How brilliant is that? As a consequence, as a response to each of us as individuals, but to us as a church, jump the fence. Be honest about the limits of our prayer life as it is today, but this week, go further. Get rid of those worldly distinctions and cry out for those who do not yet know the Lord, whoever they might be. Pray boldly, brothers and sisters.